Hello and welcome to the Arab Digest podcast. I'm William Law, editor of the Digest, and my guest today is Tariq Megarisi, a policy fellow with the North Africa and Middle East program at the European Council on Foreign Relations. He's a political analyst and researcher who specializes in Libyan affairs and more generally politics, governance, and development in the Arab world. Our conversation today looks at the growing rivalry between Turkey and the United Arab Emirates playing out in Libya and elsewhere in the MENA region. Tedek, welcome back to the Arab Digest podcast. Thank you for having me again. It's always a pleasure to be here. Now look, the, the current situation on the third front line, that's where the government of National Accord, GNA forces, they advanced to several months ago now. They drove back uh, General Haftar's LNA forces. Is it still a stalemate situation? Yeah, it's a, it's a fluid stalemate. You know, there's no fresh outbreak of war. The big event that everybody's waiting for hasn't happened, um, which is very positive. But at the same time, you know, there have been continuing reinforcements going towards the front lines. Um, and actually, just last night, you know, the, um, the whole of Western Libya was on, was on high alert. Uh, the Minister of Defense said that they had intelligence that suggested that, that Haftar and a bunch of Wagner mercenaries were planning an imminent attack along the same route that he used to get to Tripoli the last time. You know, even if you, if you look at uh, statements and, you know, all these videos and social media posts from those involved in, in Haftar's army, it's either them setting up defensive lines around certain Joffre or preparing new military convoys to go to the south. So it's a stalemate. The war hasn't started yet, but you can see the, the same old spoilers, namely Haftar, itching to go back to war, the more peace gets talked about. Now, now remind us again of the foreign actors that are engaged in the war in Libya, because there are quite a few players, aren't there? Yeah, it's, it's like a really miniaturized, dysfunctional version of the UN. Um, you have, on Haftar's side right now, is probably... His greatest physical supporter and, and cheerleader and, you know, the country that's just always there for him is the United Arab Emirates. Um, and they've been there at the forefront of his operation since day one. They're backing him for kind of geopolitical, ideological and economic reasons. Uh, and even, you know, when his army collapsed in, in June and the offensive on, on Tripoli failed, the UAE are, are the only ones that still kind of back him completely. Also supporting kind of Eastern Libya. So, you know, if we take a step beyond Haftar, there are also states who are just involved in this kind of, um, in supporting one half of Libya against another, or trying to find an antagonist to the government of National Accord, which was created by the UN and, and sits in Tripoli. Uh, and those states primarily are now um, France, uh, Egypt and Russia. Uh, and I put them in ascending order of, of how far away they are from, from, from Haftar. Uh, you know, France is, is working very closely with the UAE. The, they always have done. I think they, they view Libya through very similar prisms um, to the Emiratis. The Egyptians have kind of shifted. You know, I think they, they long got a bit frustrated with, with Haftar and his curmudgeonly kind of um, stubborn ways. Uh, and they are now trying to to more forcefully support Eastern tribes uh, and the Speaker of the Parliament, Aguila Saleh, as their kind of political counterbalance to the GNA um, and Turkey, of course. Um, and then you have the Russians who are, you know, 
probably the best way to describe them is, is they're making real this old adage that um, chaos is not a pit, it's a ladder. Uh, and so they, their policy seems to be to try to keep Libya divided, to keep it in a state of frozen conflict, because for them, that is the optimal way that they are able to secure as many interests as possible with as small uh, an outlay um, as, as possible. Um, and today, you know, they are what Haftar relies on and what the Emiratis rely on most of all to maintain a military antagonist to the GNA in Turkey. They are essentially in a place of, of de facto control over the oil terminals of the country, although they, they kind of slightly decamped in order to allow oil exports to resume again. Um, and they are more and more prominent as a, uh, as a diplomatic actor in Libya. Uh, despite the small outlay, they are positioning themselves alongside Turkey as trying to, to broker a track that would rival the UN and the Western multilateral position. You know, on the opposite side, backing the government of National Accord, first and foremost, is Turkey, um, who kind of allowed the UAE and Russia and others to tenderize them back in 2019. Um, and then at, at the height of the GNA's desperation, they kind of swooped in, gave them protection in exchange for, uh, you know, rights to various air bases, naval ports, a lot of reconstruction deals, energy deals. And of course, this really infamous now um, memorandum of understanding, which drew a new maritime border between Libya and Turkey. Um, and yeah, I mean, that's the that's the short version of, of who's involved in Libya and why I'll try not to go into the long one today. And as you say, it's it's Turkey and the UAE who are really the primary antagonists of playing out this proxy battle. But where else in the region are the two butting heads? From the perspectives or from the perches of, of Ankara and, and, and Abu Dhabi, the two are engaged in a regional existential battle with each other. Um, you know, obviously the, the Turks blame everything on Abu Dhabi, um, saying that, you know, we're just here peacefully trying to do business. And then the Emiratis came and they're challenging us from, from Qatar um, in the east uh, to Libya and the Mediterranean in, in the west. Um, and then from, from Abu Dhabi's perspective, Turkey is, is supporting and, and holding up everything that they oppose and everything that they fear in the region. So they see them as this existential threat. And, you know, this, this notion of, of a regional battle that takes on many different forms and many different fronts I think is quite underexplored and underappreciated um, as a defining driver for uh, for conflict and for um, kind of intransigence in general in, in the Middle East today. Uh, so you know we've 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 gone into Libya, which has turned into one of the biggest fronts and kind of a, a seminal front for for a lot of new dynamics such as mercenaries and drones that have been in play. Um, if we shift a bit eastwards, we have the Eastern Mediterranean as well. I mean, despite being about as far removed from the Mediterranean as you can get in the region, uh, the Emiratis are, are kind of right in the right in the thick of it. They're doing um, joint military exercises with Greece and Cyprus and Egypt, um, and they've kind of used Egypt as a as a springboard to to insert themselves into that region because they know that it's a way of of really holding the fire close to Turkey's feet and and inserting themselves in what Turkey views as its backyard and probably the top um, national security priority for them. If we keep shifting east, you know, we have the Levant area. 
uh, and I don't think it, it's it's any real surprise that the Emiratis have been becoming more and more involved in Syria um, as Turkey also intervened in northern Syria. And this is where, you know, the kind of regional battle starts to get pitched together or stitched together, sorry, because, um, you know, the, the Emiratis are, are starting the recognition process of Bashar al-Assad, starting the normalization process and bringing him back into the Arab League and, and sending him support. Um, and so the Emiratis have, have come and they've, and they've worked alongside Russia and they've tried to cultivate a new Syria um, in order to improve their relationship with, with Russia so that they might better use Russia against Turkey uh, in other forums. And of course, you know, the Russians are, are more than happy to, to picket the divides between Middle Eastern actors in order to grow their position. And it's not just between, um, you know, standing in the middle between the UAE and Turkey. It's, it's also standing in the middle between Egypt and Turkey, uh, which, you know, and Egypt is, is perhaps the Emiratis' first acquisition in their new regional great game that they started playing in response to the Arab Spring. And, and so we see that this whole thing is kind of more and more interconnected. And, you know, even this um, recent, what do they call it, the, the Abraham Accords between Israel and, and the UAE and then Israel, the UAE and, and Bahrain is being read in Ankara as a way for the UAE to, to, to firstly ensure continuing and greater support from the Trump administration for themselves um, as trying to you know, position themselves as the, the US and Trump's key regional partner, um, but also in, in firming up a relationship with the Israelis um, to try to, to kind of face down Turkey across the, the region. You know, Iran does play a big part in it, but I think in Abu Dhabi's long-term threat perception, um, Turkey is, is probably, or perhaps, um, a bigger shadow than Iran is right now. Uh, something that the Saudi Arabians might not like very much, um, but this is also something that, that resonates in, in Israel. Uh, and the Emiratis have been working quite closely with the Israelis on, on a security platform and a tech platform for many years now. Um, but once again, it's, it's an interesting coincidence, and I wouldn't say that this is the driver, but it's just an interesting note to pick up, that this came following kind of a period of, of a few months where the Turks have been quietly uh, reaching out to the Israelis, trying to repair relations with them over what's, what's going on in the Eastern Mediterranean, as the Turks try to, to kind of break up this Eastern Mediterranean forums so that they can insert themselves in there. Yeah, that's kind of a, a quick hop and skip around a lot of, a lot of f separate regional front lines in this overall battleground. Um, but I think it gives an idea of, of the complexity and, and the, the different levels that this competition is taking place at. Yes, and it's an interesting thought, as you say, Tarek, that the Emiratis may view Turkey as a more significant, well, arguably much more significant rival than, than Iran, because, of course, the Emiratis have lots of commercial relations with Iran and have rather played down the tensions that the Americans, the Israelis and the Saudis have tried to push up. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think things got a little bit too real for the Emiratis uh, earlier on this year uh, when, when tensions skyrocketed. And, and as you say, you know, I mean, specifically Dubai, but the UAE in general have very strong economic relations um, with Iran. And when it became clear that, you know, 
the Trump administration might be happy to, to light the touch paper, but it's not going to be happy to actually intervene if a conflict breaks out between Gulf states and Iran. Uh, the Emiratis were the first ones to, to kind of do this shuttle diplomacy and do this quiet diplomacy with Iran uh, to try to smooth over relations there. Um, you know, the Emiratis, as uh, and kind of anecdote I, I hear mentioned a lot by, by people from other Gulf states, is that the Emiratis see themselves as, as Kuwait 2.0 uh, and they want to make sure that they don't have the same Saddam moment that the Kuwaitis had in the 90s. About uh, this conflict that's going on uh, between the Armenians and Azerbaijan, with the Turks backing the Azerbaijanis uh, very heavily in this dispute over Nagorno-Karabakh, I mean, how how will Mohammed bin Zayed view that? Will he see that as once again Turkey flexing its military muscle in the region? Will he see that as some kind of a an implicit uh, threat? I mean, we're we're starting to get to the fringes of of what we consider the region now, but. You know, from from Ben Zayed's perspective, if if I can put myself in 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 his shoes, I think this is a great opportunity. I mean, how Abu Dhabi has has looked at Turkey in in other forums, and let's take Libya as an example here. They see Turkey as as slightly economically weak right now, um, as increasingly diplomatically isolated, something which they've tried to help along, and so they see the surest path to weakening Turkey is to entrap them in kind of messy long-term conflicts which will gradually erode um, their geopolitical standing, Erdogan's popularity at home and the capacity of of Turkey as a state and as an armed forces to to deal with anything new. Um, And from that perspective, you know, if I was Mohammed bin Zayed, I would say, great, you know, Turkey has just offered up a new front line on a platter um, if the Emiratis should choose to, to quietly get involved uh, and back Armenia financially or, or through weapons deliveries as they've done through other proxies uh, or even through, through mercenaries, that's something that's of very relatively small cost to themselves. If it goes wrong, then they don't have any blowback. But this is something that's, that's very close to Turkey, both emotionally and politically. Um, and so I think they view it as a Turkish vulnerability more than anything else. And I would expect them to now try to pick at that scab. Now, just before we move on, I wanted to ask you about Qatar, because that, that dispute, it, it does seem to me that the Emiratis are very much intending to keep that dispute bubbling along. Whereas uh, there is a lot of pressure, particularly coming from Washington, to say, look, just just end this split within the GCC because we all need to get together against the greater threat of Iran. And yet Turkey is in there. Turkey's in Qatar very uh, very tightly. Yeah, I mean, if Qatar is probably the, the opposite story to, to Azerbaijan and, and all the dynamics I was just talking about for, for how the UAE could see an opportunity there to get at something close to Turkey, you know, Turkey had this opportunity from a couple of years back now to get into Qatar um, to help them when they were at their most desperate. And as such, they are now positioned very close to, to the UAE. Um, and this also plays into to what I was saying earlier about the, the UAE and the Abraham Accords, right? Because the Emiratis don't always see eye to eye with the US or Europe. In fact, they, they spend a lot of time and resources trying to undermine Western positions in, in the region. Um, And so actions like the Abraham Accords 
allows Benzayat to turn around to, to Kushner and to Trump and to, and to others and say, look, you know, I've done you a favor. I scratched your back. So don't make too big of a deal over, over what's going on in, in Qatar or in uh, Libya and so on. Um, and yeah, I think the, the Qatar story is quite interesting is because it's when uh, it was a nascent point in this kind of regional showdown between Turkey and the UAE, and it's when this started to split into, into coalitions. You know, the UAE's first move, as Mohammed bin Zayed tried to get more geopolitical, uh, was to, to almost colonize Saudi Arabia through the ascension of, of Mohammed bin Salman. Turkey's first acquisition as kind of a, a partner or a junior partner in a, in a coalition to show down against the UAE and Saudi Arabia was Qatar. And the opportunity to do this was handed to them on a plate. Um, and now, you know, the Turks are, are very close to Qatar. Uh, they have this kind of military base there. They're assuring their security. Uh, in return, Qatar has given Turkey uh, a lot of um, cheap loans and, and just pure dollars uh, in order to shore up the Turkish central bank as they have their own currency problems. Um, and we can see the, the evolution of this partnership um, in Libya, once again, uh, you know, last a couple of months ago now, uh, the Turkish defense minister visited Libya alongside the Qatari defense minister, uh, where they talked about, you know, future joint projects between Turkey, Qatar uh, and Libya. Uh, and both Turkey and Qatar have kind of some shared rights and access rights and, and docking rights and so on now in Misrata port going forward which looks like it will be developed as a, as a naval port. Um, and once again, even yesterday, we saw the, the, the Turkish completion of the first uh, training vessel for a new Qatari navy um, for them to start training and developing themselves. So you can see that, you know, Qatar was the first acquisition, let's keep using this term, of, of, of Turkey and its regional showdown um, against the UAE. And it was the moment when this turned into, into a showdown of coalitions. Uh, and Qatar might, you know, be the junior partner to Turkey in a lot of ways, but it, it's just as important as Turkey in that alliance. You know, it's the cash man, it's the bag man to, um, to Turkey's strongman. So really, we have two competing visions here, President Erdogan, with what some are calling neo-Ottomanism and an ideology rooted in political Islam versus Mahmoud bin Zayed, who's the sworn enemy of political Islam. Who do you think is gaining the upper hand and, and why? Yeah, I mean, if you'll allow me to just kind of unpack this, this framing slightly. Um, I don't really like the, the neo-Ottomanism label that, that's going around a lot, just as, as much as I kind of dislike this, this framing around Islamism. You know, I think that both of these labels are, are something that are encouraged at times and just held up as a facade at other times. To kind of try to give more, more color or more reasoning to to what at the end of the day is is kind of just raw strategy or, or raw realpolitik because it's kind of uncouth to to discuss oneself in in such terms you know for tiny countries like the UAE or for historic countries like Turkey you always need a, a rallying narrative you know the story that you give to to different segments of your society or new allies that you're trying to latch onto. And, you know, for the UAE, it's, it's so much easier to go to D.C. and Paris and so on and say, yeah, 
we're fighting Islamism and Islamism leads to terrorism, which is something that you guys are fighting, then it is to say we're fighting democracy in the Arab world because we're worried that democracy might come for us one day. Um, the real story, I think, of, of, of what's going on is that both Mohammed bin Zayed and, and President Erdogan are savvy enough to realize that, that the world is changing, um, you know, that as the U.S., changes itself, it moves away from the region, it looks more towards China, as this kind of ideal of the EU is, is, is starting to wither, um, Turkey certainly has, has lost all hope that they will ever be allowed into the EU, uh, and so is starting to look towards the region as well. Russia is beginning to grow into the region, China is, becoming, is beginning to grow in the region, there's a real boom starting in Africa, you know, now is a time of, of change. Um, and periods of change, you know, from this kind of geopolitical perspective, and if you want to, to assume the perspective and assume the, the position of kind of trying to be a strategist, um, is a way that, that you can really transition your own country to try to, to make either a new space for your country or a new position in, in the global hierarchy and the global scheme of things. And I think that's really the, the story of, of what's going on right now. You know, from the Turkish perspective, Ankara knows it's, it's not joining the EU. Um, to use the Europeans' own terms, it, it sees itself as surrounded by a ring of fire, largely thanks to the US and the wars that have happened in, in Iraq and in Syria. Um, it sees the, the Russians as kind of having very aggressively grown itself out. And it thinks, well, you know, why can't we do the same? We're Turkey. We're a historic empire. Uh, we're not going to allow the Greeks and others to continue bullying us in the Mediterranean because we want to join their club one day. And if the Europeans won't let us into their club, we're going to make our own club and it's going to be bigger and it's going to be better and it's going to stretch to Libya and Africa and so on. Um, and then from the Emirati perspective, it's, well, you know, the old order is dying. Iraq collapsed, Syria collapsed, Egypt collapsed. Saudi Arabia was, was ripe for the taking with this... Um, transfer of power around uh, King, King Salman and his son. Um, and from there, this was a new opportunity to, to create a new Middle East. And I, I wouldn't say something as simplistic as saying that the UAE wants to directly rule or, or you know, have this empire that extends over the Middle East, because I think even as ambitious as Bin Zayed is, he, he, he wouldn't fall for that trap or so simplistic a reading. But he sees an opportunity to create, you know, this network of states that are reliant on him or states that are gracious towards him um, because he's helping to, to prop up the old way of doing things, the old crony networks, um, the old kleptocratic dictatorships. Uh, you know, even as Mubarak went and you had this brief period, um, Sisi is back now. And I think that's Egypt is the perfect example of everything that Ben Zayed was trying to build and everything that's wrong with it. Um, because, you know, what is it, five, six years later, uh, the Egyptians are starting to bristle uh, at how much the Emiratis would like to control them. Uh, the Egyptians uh, have their own pride, have their own perspectives. Uh, and we see the Egyptians starting to talk to Turkey uh, about Libya and about the Eastern Mediterranean. So all in all, you have two very different visions I didn't really answer your question about who's got the upper hand um, because I, I think things are, are still balanced. I think both of them are at times shooting themselves in the foot. Both of them are kind of overextending. And, 
And this is kind of a leap in the dark, you know, as much as, as Erdogan likes to call on uh, Turkey's historic mission here, you know, he has no direct experience at empire building. Uh, another does Mohammed bin Zayed. So, yeah, this is a leap in the dark from both actors. But the way that they've done it, you know, the way that, that they rely on, on new technology like drones, uh, on mercenary forces instead of their own armies, um, and how they have this kind of network of allies internationally that, that largely shield them from any scrutiny. Uh, and the Emiratis are much better at this than, than, than the, the, the Turks. I think that they, they don't really see many risks for themselves. Um, you know, if they, if they leap in the dark and it doesn't work out, it's not their young men who are dying. We, we began with Libya, so let us, let us conclude then with Libya. You look at the situation, are we going to see any sort of negotiations? Is there any cause for hope, uh, Terek? I think there's always hope, um, but we have to be careful in, in, in how we trade in it, because when you're really vested in the situation, if you hope too much, it, it'll be the hope that kills you. Look, there's a political track that's going on right now, uh, and it's the first time in a few years that the conversation has been based around a political track instead of based around either the upcoming war with Haftar or the actual war with Haftar. Uh, and I think that's really positive and we shouldn't uh, denigrate that. Um, but at the same time, a lot of the factors and a lot of the dynamics around the talks are eerily similar um, to 2017 uh, and 18, you know, when the national conference process started up, uh, which was the brainchild of the UN uh, before France, Abu Dhabi and Haftar got involved. Uh, and also in 2015, you know, when these UN-backed talks were happening that, that birthed the government of national accord, which kind of died as soon as it was born, really. Um, and from that perspective, it's, it's kind of eerie. And I worry that everybody's just repeating the same mistakes, um, except that there's not many more rounds of this pummeling that the country itself can take. So I'm not sure what the next cycle of violence would look like and would do. So let's call it cautious optimism. Um, you know, there are talks in, in Geneva at the end of the month. Let's see if, if the UN can, can pull a trick out of the bag. Terek, thank you very much. Thank you as always, Bill. It's a real pleasure to talk to you. You've been listening to the Arab Digest podcast. My guest today was Tariq Megrisi, a policy fellow with the North Africa and Middle East program at the European Council on Foreign Relations. We welcome your comments. If you're not already a member and you want to join the club, you can find out how by going to ArabDigest.org. If you're a student, we have a new rate of £10 a month or £100 per year. And for academics and retirees, we are now offering a rate that amounts to a 70% discount. Check it out on ArabDigest.org. I'm William Law, editor of the Arab Digest. Essential reading from independent sources.